I, I just want to thank you guys as a congregation. Most of you know that a couple of months ago, my little sister passed away, and I want you guys to know that we are, were overwhelmed. I know my wife and my daughter would echo the same sentiments. We were overwhelmed by the texts, the emails, the phone calls. Um, they were so helpful and so encouraging. My parents felt it. We felt it. So thank you guys. You're a special congregation, a special group of people. Uh, thank you for letting God use you the way that you do. Um, a number of years ago, there was a movie that came out called The Miracle. Does anybody remember that movie? It's been quite a while. There you go. Yes. It starred Kurt Russell, and it was about the 1980 U.S. men's hockey team. And if you remember anything at all about the story, this hockey team was basically a group of college boys. They were a group of college boys. They were pretty talented, but they were young, and they hadn't really played together at all before. And so nobody gave them any chance, really, to win anything at all. They didn't think they could win a medal in the Olympics, let alone win a gold medal. But all of a sudden, they started winning. And they started winning some more. And against all odds, they found themselves in the semifinals of the Olympic tournament against Russia. And Russia was this juggernaut. They were this this strong power. They had basically won everything in the world since 1954. So more than 30 years, they'd won everything. Nobody thought they had a chance to win. And if you remember in the movie, there's a scene where Kurt Russell, who is the coach, walks into the locker room before the game, and he's about to give the the pregame speech. Do you guys remember that? Everybody, all these kids, they had these eyes this big looking at him as he walks in to give the pregame speech. And he walks in and he opens his mouth to give the the pregame speech and he says, great moments are born from great opportunities. Great moments are born from great opportunities. And I think that's a lot what what we're going to see today as we look at the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is trying to describe a situation that an opportunity that the people that he's talking to have in order to change their lives and the lives of their children and the lives of their children's children forever. He's talking about something divine that has happened. So let's look at it. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 19 through 22. And as you turn there, Mark's uh, been in in Hebrews quite a bit over the past few weeks. Um, Most of you guys know that the author of Hebrews, nobody really knows for sure who it is. He didn't sign his name to the document. Some say that it was the Apostle Paul. Some say that it may have been Apollos from Corinthians. But what we do know for sure is the author of Hebrews was very well versed. He was very knowledgeable about Jewish tradition. He was very knowledgeable about Jewish background and Jewish life. And in this particular letter, he's speaking to Jewish people who have become believers in Christ. Jewish people who have become believers in Christ. So let's read it. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. It says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Now, when I look at this passage, I don't know about you guys, but when I look at this passage, it seems overwhelming. 
There's a lot of information here, and it's, it's so much that it's hard for me to really even know where to look. But the reality is, when we dig into this passage, it's not that complicated a passage. It's actually a really simple passage, so simple, in fact, that as you look at it, it only has one real command, one real exhortation, one real thing for us as believers to do. It is found at the beginning of verse 22 in four little words. You guys see it there? Let us draw near. Let us draw near. That's the command. And it's not really stated explicitly here in in this particular passage, but as we look at the context of this verse and as we look at the context of the overall book of Hebrews, we see that the object of drawing near is God. He's not telling us here that we need to draw near to nature. He's not telling us that we need to draw near to each other, although the Bible certainly speaks strongly about Christian community and and community among Christians. He's telling us that we need to draw near to the God of the universe. He's telling us that we need to draw near to our Creator. And you see, the author of Hebrews here, he's found the opportunity, and he's saying, this is how you take advantage of it. This is how you take advantage of it. Let us draw near. So the first point in your notes today is this. We are called to draw near to God. We are called, as believers, to draw near to God. The Greek word translated as draw near here, and I'll probably botch the pronunciation, or pronunciation but it's, it's, it's the word proserkomai. Proserkomai. That's the name. It means to come to or to approach. So we're told to come to or to approach God. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like uh, the image of one person walking up to another. So as I'm walking up to another, I'm approaching another person. But, but the image here is more than just physical proximity. It's talking about the drawing near of the heart. It's talking about an interaction. It's talking about a relationship that we need to have with God. The reality is, this should be the heart cry of every one of us as believers. We should want to draw near to God. We should want to have a relationship with God. And as we look into the Bible, we see that not only are we called to draw near to God, yes, we are called to draw near to God, but we notice that the believers in the Bible, they craved the presence of God. God's God's people craved his presence. And we as believers should crave his presence. You see, being in the complete presence of God is the pinnacle of our existence as believers. That's what we were made for. That's the center of our lives as Christians and believers. And everything else in our lives, the way we think, the way we act, the things we say, all stem, all flow from that center in our lives, not the other way around. I think a lot of times in, we get it mixed up. We get it switched up to where we do the other things first and we go, hey, I need to serve and I need to um, do all of these things over here and, and maybe I need to read my Bible sometimes and, and I need to be nice to people and I need to um, tell my wife I love her and all of these different things that I'm supposed to do and we forget that the Bible, Christianity, is not about all the things we do. 
It's about the relationship we have with the creator of the universe. And the reality is, if we as believers do not desire to be near God, if we don't desire to have a relationship with God, if we don't want God, instead of all the other things that, that he gives us, if, if we don't want God, then it doesn't matter how many prayers we pray. It doesn't matter how many people we serve. It doesn't matter how many good things we do. Then we're not going to know God. And we won't be ushered into the presence of heaven with him if we don't want him. You see, as, as believers, our passion has to be to, to draw near to God. And we see this all over the Bible. If you remember in the Old Testament, if you, you guys remember the God's people, the Israelites, without the presence of God, God's people, the Israelites, were just normal people. They were just normal people. If you remember, they were defeated by everybody. They were defeated by the Philistines. They were defeated by the Babylonians. They were defeated by everybody. They got out in the desert and they didn't have any food and they panicked and they whined and they cursed God and they didn't trust God. They didn't do any of the things they were supposed to do. They didn't love each other. They were normal people without the presence of God. But with the presence of God, all of a sudden, trumpets could blow and the walls of Jericho could fall down. With the presence of God, they could walk out of slavery in Egypt. They could be led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They could walk with the Egyptians following them. They could walk to the edge of the Red Sea, watch the Red Sea parted, walk across on dry ground, turn around and watch their enemies bombarded under the, under the flow of the water as it went back into the Red Sea. With the presence of God, everything changed in their lives. You see, without the presence of God, they were normal people. Without the presence of God, they were normal people. But with the presence of God, they had a power that conquered and changed the world. And guess what? Without the presence of God in our lives, we're normal people. We're just like everybody else. But with the presence of God, we have a power that conquers and changes the world. We have something that no one else has when we have the presence of God. It was God's presence, if you remember, that Moses refused to be without in Exodus 33. If you remember the story, God had told him, hey, go from Mount Sinai and go into this land that I've promised you. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. I've promised it to all, to all your ancestors, so you go. And Moses turns around, he looks at God, and he says, if your presence won't go with me, then don't send us out of here. If your presence don't, won't go with me, don't send us out of here. He was looking at Eden. He was looking at everything he wanted in the land of milk and honey that God had promised. But he said, no, if your presence won't go with me, I have no desire to go. I have no desire to go. David talked about, David talked about in, in, in Psalm 1611, he talked about in the, your presence, God, is fullness of joy. It's repeated, by the way, in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. If you remember, I don't know if you guys remember the story, David also committed adultery. He did a lot of bad things. Committed adultery with Bathsheba, uh, killed her husband Uriah. And we, we read his response in Psalm 51. And the one thing that he's concerned about is God's presence. He begs God, cast me not away from your presence, God. Cast me not away from your presence. As believers, the desire of our hearts should be his presence. His presence. And so the author of Hebrews tell us, tells us, draw near. This is how you take advantage. Draw near. Draw near to him. Seek his presence. But if we're honest, the whole thing just seems kind of awkward. 
it seems kind of impossible. I mean, we're talking about God who is holy and righteous and true and perfect and omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient. God who is perfect and in every way, and he's telling sinners that they need to draw near to God. If my little girl, she's, she was in kindergarten a couple of years ago, and they were teaching about geography. They're teaching about geography. And one of the things that I guess caught her eye was Mount Everest. And so for about a week, every day she would come home and tell us how great Mount Everest was. And, and it, we would notice it, start noticing it on the, on the TV. You know how that happens. Sometimes you're just looking around. Well, Mount Everest, Mount Everest. We even, y'all remember Bear Grylls? We even, we even got the Bear Grylls videos out. And so I'm like, all right, Timber, so here's what you got to do. Um, when, when, when you're, um, if you want to climb to the top of Mount Everest, then here's what you got to do. You got to just climb up this 100-foot frozen waterfall. You use your pickaxe to slide down the rest of the glacier. Use your knife to go ahead and strap some bark into some snowshoes and just walk the rest of the way up. That's what you got to do. There's nothing to it. And so very much, very much, um, what God, or what the author of Hebrews is doing here is like me looking at my daughter and saying, Timber, you go to the top of Mount Everest. But, but go. Go to the top of Mount Everest. That's what he's saying here. That's what it looks like for the Jews here that are listening to this passage. What am I going to do? How am I going to get plane tickets? How am I gonna, what, do I need to, what do I need to pack? What do I need to do? So the question for the Jewish people and for us today is, um, how? How do we draw near to God? He's perfect. We're not. It just doesn't seem to fit. So let's read verses 19 through 21 again, and I believe it gives us the answer. Verses 19 through 21 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, And since we have a great high priest, by the way, the great high priest is Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near. So how can we draw near to God? The answer is through the blood of Jesus. The answer is through Jesus' sacrifice. So the third point today is the blood of Jesus gives us the the privilege to draw near to God. The blood of Jesus gives us the privilege to draw near to God. There's a lot of Old Testament, a lot of, of Jewish verbiage, a lot of Old Testament ver- verbiage in this, in this verse, so, or in this passage. So I just want to give you guys a little bit of background. I'll try to be quick. I know it's difficult to go through that. The people of, of Israel, the Jews, worshipped in a tabernacle or a temple. And this tabernacle or temple, it essentially consisted of three spaces. The, the biggest space was called the outer courtyard. The outer courtyard. And basically everyone could go in the outer courtyard. This place was huge. There were times when people got cast out of the outer courtyard and things like that. But for the most part, everybody could be in the outer courtyard. And then in the middle of this outer courtyard, there was a rectangular tent. And this rectangular tent had two rooms in it. The larger of those rooms was called the holy place the holy place. And the priests could go into the holy place and, and, and they could go into the holy place basically at will. But then the smaller room was called the holy of holies. 
the Holy of Holies. This is basically where the presence of God dwelled. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was, if you remember the Ark of the Covenant in Scripture. This is where the presence of God was. And in, in the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go in. And he could only go in one time per year, and he could only go in for the purpose of making sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. That was the only reason that he could go in there, to make sacrifices, to make amends for, to pay for the sins of the people. That was the only reason that he could go in. But you see, the rest of the Jews were not allowed to go inside the Holy of Holies. There was a giant, thick, woven curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And so the Jews, the other Jews, were strictly prohibited from going back behind the curtain in order to be in the presence of God. So let's take the passage again in, in verse 19. The holy places that it's talking about are the holy place and the Holy of Holies. That's the rectangular tent that is in the middle of the outer courtyard. The holy place and the Holy of Holies. And then you've got the the discussion of the curtain in verse 20. And so if you remember, the moment Jesus died, in uh, Matthew 27 records it, the moment that Jesus died, the, the, the curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. Ripped in two from top to bottom. And so what happened was, this was the curtain, this was the veil that was separating the holy place from the holy of holies. And all of a sudden, when the curtain got ripped in two, From top to bottom, God's people could walk in and out of God's presence. It marked a transition in which God could all of a sudden, his presence could be in the hearts of men instead of just in this holy holy of holies that he's talking about. When the veil, the curtain was ripped in two, it changed eternity. It changed everything about how we do life. And so now we as God's people can enter God's presence freely. Because the curtain is split in two. We can enter God's presence with confidence because we know that the blood of Jesus covers all of our sins. We don't have to enter enter God's presence with guilt and with, with shame. And you see, this whole concept was groundbreaking for the Jews. It was groundbreaking. And it is for us today as well. Through Jesus Christ, God has given us the opportunity to have a relationship with him. Like a real, actual relationship with him. It means that I can approach God like a son instead of like a beggar. It means that we can approach God with boldness and confidence because we know that we have good standing before him because of the blood of Jesus and not because of anything we have done or anything that we will do. We don't have to be concerned that we have done too much wrong to be accepted by God or that our sacrifices aren't good enough for God or anything like that. It means that we can fully acknowledge our own depravity our own sinfulness, our own imperfection. We can fully acknowledge our own imperfection, our own sinfulness, and yet we don't have to be held captive by its shame. It changes everything for us as believers. We don't have to walk around in shame at our past. We aren't outcasts. We aren't failures. We aren't rejects. The world does not give us our identity. Jesus Christ gives us our identity. We don't need the validation of others to know who we are. We have our validation in Jesus Christ, and it is stamped in his blood to be presented to the Father guilty, but now redeemed, 
harlot, but now a bride, lost, but now a son, sinful, but now made whole, now made spotless, aimless, but now employed by the creator of the universe, powerless, but now filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus' death changes everything about our lives. You ever wonder how we can love our enemies? Like, that's a weird command. Love our enemies. You remember that in Matthew 5? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's weird. That's weird. I mean, let's just be honest. It is what it is. That's weird. But we can love those who insult us. We can love those who ridicule us. We can love those who blaspheme us. We can even love those who desire to destroy us. Because we know that we are not perfect people marching rank and file into God's presence. We are imperfect, broken people, broken, sinful people being ushered into the presence of God by a perfect Savior. That's what we are. Paul said it well in Ephesians 2. He said this, We also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. See, it's important here. We can can go to the throne of grace. We can go to God's presence with boldness, with confidence. And it's important here that we understand that our boldness, our confidence in approaching him is found only through Jesus Christ. No other means, nothing that we do. If we approach him boldly in our own pride and because of the the good life that we think we lived or the great service that we think we've done, we're never going to be able to draw near to him. We're never going to be able to draw near to him. And guess what? We'll get quickly cast out of his presence. But if we come humbly, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, then we will draw near to him. So the blood of Jesus has opened the door for us to approach God. It's opened the door for us to approach God. It's opened the door for us to draw near to him. And the Holy Spirit empowers us in order to have the strength to do that. But the author of Hebrews here is telling us that we have some level of responsibility in this. We have to do something. It's not something that is done on our own or in our own strength or in our own power. It's done through the Holy Spirit. It says, let us draw near. We have to draw near. So I'm going to give you three things that I believe this passage teaches that helps us to draw near to God. Three things that I believe this passage teaches that help us to draw near to God. Number one is this, believe that Jesus's sacrifice cleanses me completely from sin. Believe that Jesus's sacrifice cleanses me completely from sin. Look at verse 19 again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places through the blood of Jesus, we can't have confidence unless we believe that Jesus has forgiven us of all our sins. Our boldness to approach God, our, our boldness to draw near to him, our confidence in drawing near to him is dependent upon our belief that the blood of Jesus covers us from all our sin. Not that, it's cleansed, not that it's cleansed us, that it's covered us from sins in the past, but not in the future. Not that it's cleansed us from 
all of my sins except for the really bad ones. It's dependent upon the, my belief that I completely believe that God has covered all of my sins. He has cleansed all of my sins. And if we don't really believe that, then we won't allow ourselves to draw near to God. And so I think a lot of us are struggling. I think in our minds... <clears throat> We believe that, and we we do all we can in our minds to believe that, but deep down in our hearts, if we look at it, maybe we don't really believe it. You see, here's the crazy thing. I bet you if I asked everyone in this room, and maybe everyone in the community at large, hey, do you believe the blood of Jesus covers all your sins? Then I, I believe that the vast majority of people in this room would say, absolutely, it does. And probably in the community would say, absolutely, it does. But I don't believe completely that's that, tr- that that is true. And the reason that I know that is because I see in my own life times when I think I believe, but my actions show me different. My actions show me different. I'll give you an example. Um, I told you we have a little girl. For, I, I mentioned her name was, was Timber. Several years ago, we were trying to explain to her the difference between accidents and disobedience. Accidents and disobedience. And so if she had a cup of juice or water or whatever little ones drink, if she had a cup of, of those things and she accidentally knocked it off and it spilled all over the floor, then she didn't do anything wrong. She's not going to get in trouble. That's not going to be a problem. That's not going to be a big deal at all. But if we tell her to move the cup and she refuses to move the cup and then she turns around and knocks it over, then she's going to be in big trouble for that. One is an accident. The other is disobedience. And so I would have this conversation with her. Timber, listen, hey, if you knock the cup over and it spills, you're not going to get in trouble. You didn't do anything wrong. Accidents happen. Mommy, mommy has accidents. Daddy has, that sounded bad. Mommy has accidents. <laughs> mommy has accidents. Daddy has accidents. Um, it just happens. You're not going to get in trouble. Um, it's not going to be a big deal. But if you're disobedient, then you'll be in trouble. And so inevitably, she would knock over the cup, and it would spill all over the floor, and immediately she would start crying. Immediately she would start crying. She told me she believed She told me she believed me. Daddy, I I believe you. I understand. She believed that she wasn't going to get in trouble. She believed that that she didn't do anything wrong, and yet her actions are saying she doesn't believe. She doesn't believe. She thinks she did something wrong. And I think that we do the exact same thing with God. I think we do the exact same thing with God. Here's how it works. Maybe we sin, but we don't want to go and get back in the Bible and read the Bible. Maybe we sin and we don't want to confess our sins to God. We try to hide it from him in our heart. We're ashamed. We try to hide it from him in our heart. Maybe we sin and we don't show up at church the next Sunday. Maybe we sin and all of a sudden we don't believe, we don't feel worthy in order to share the gospel with someone else. Maybe we sin and we we go and do a whole bunch of services in order to right that wrong. Those are good indications in my life and in your life that maybe we don't quite believe that, that God's 
that Jesus' blood covers us completely from our sins. Maybe we don't quite believe. So the question is, how do we deal with it? How do we deal with this lack of belief? The answer is, we can't do it on our own. This isn't a, mm, just work harder and, and, and make it to where we can believe this. That's not what it is. This only comes through the Holy Spirit. And so what we do is we're like the father in Mark 9. If you remember, his, his son had a demon cast out of him and he looked at Jesus and, Jesus, and he said, I believe Help my unbelief. I'm doing everything I can on my side. God, I gotta have your power. I gotta have your strength. I gotta have everything you are. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe. Help my unbelief. That's what we do. So the first thing that's necessary for us to draw near to God is a belief that Christ's blood covers all of our sins. It's a belief that Christ's blood covers all of our sins. The second thing is this. We must be still before him. We must be still before him. If we're going to have a relationship with God in which we enter his presence, we've got to know who he is. Just like my wife when we started dating, I had to get to know who she is. I kind of had a plan going into the relationship. Hey, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to give hugs and send flowers and all these different things. But until I laid down my agenda and realized that I had to get to know her, then we couldn't have a relationship it was just me doing a whole bunch of stuff, right? So in order, in order for us to have a relationship to, with God, we got to be still before him. We got to spend time getting to know him. We're not going to draw near to him if we have no idea who he really is. And by the way, that happens a lot more than we think as believers. We're, we're all, a lot of times we're worshiping someone that's not really God. We think maybe we're worshiping God, but he looks nothing like the God of the Bible, that happens a lot as believers. I mentioned earlier that the Greek word for draw near, and I won't try to pronounce it again, but the Greek word for draw near uh, is used several times in the New Testament. One of the times that it's used, and I thought this was really neat, was in Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2, just before the Sermon on the Mount. You guys remember the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right before the Sermon on the Mount, and so Jesus is, is here on this mountain about to, give, um, about to give the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what verses 1 and 2 say. When he saw the crowds, he mean Jesus, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Came is the word proserkomai. Came. Then he began to teach them. I don't know about you guys, but I get this picture in my mind of Jesus sitting down to teach He's sitting down to teach, and the disciples see an opportunity to learn. So they come quickly up the mountain. They understand that this is a great opportunity for them. They come quickly up the mountain. They sit down. Their gaze is transfixed on him. Everything else falls apart, and they're looking at Jesus because they know that his words can change their lives. That's what I get in my mind, and that's, what, that's exactly what we have to do in order to draw near to him. We spend time learning about who he is in his word. We spend time silently in prayer, not just, not just talking to him and speaking to him in prayer. We spend time silently listening to him in prayer. We spend time praising him. We run to him at every opportunity, eyes and ears open, because we know that, that the relationship that we have with God is the most important relationship that we're ever going to have in our life. We're like the psalmist in Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So my question to you guys and to me this morning is, is this the way you treat him? Is he the most important relationship in your life? Do the things in your life bear that out? 
Can you look at your life and go, the most important relationship in my life is Jesus Christ. The most important relationship in my life is God. If we aren't being still before him, then we're going to be limited in drawing near to him. Andrew Murray was a late theologian and author. He wrote it this way, take time. Give God time to reveal himself to you. Give yourself time to be silent and quiet before him, waiting to receive through the Spirit the assurance of his presence with you, his power working in you. Take time to read his word as in his presence, that from it you may know that he asks of you what he promises you. Let the word create around you, create within you a holy atmosphere, a holy heavenly light in which your soul will be refreshed and strengthened for the work of daily life. I wonder how many of us have stifled our ability to see the greatness of God's power and his presence at work within us because we refuse to be still before him. So that's number two. We must... Be still before him. Number three is this. We must have a true heart before him. We must have a true heart before him. Look again at verse 22. It says this. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In full assurance of faith. Andrew Murray describes it like this. True religion is a thing of the heart an inward life. It is only as the desire of the heart is fixed upon God, the whole heart seeking for God, giving its love and finding its joy in God, that a man can draw near to God. I want to give you a couple characteristics of a true heart. First of all, a true heart is sincere. A true heart is sincere. A true heart is, is like the psalmist in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. A true heart is open before God. A true heart, heart is not fake. It understands its weaknesses and confesses sin to God. A true heart doesn't, doesn't hide from God. When, when it's struggling, a true heart tells God. When it's frustrated, a true heart tells God. When it sins, a true heart confesses to God. A true heart is not trying to be fake. A true heart is not interested in appearances before him. It knows that God knows all, and so it chooses to be real with him. A true heart doesn't play church. A true heart doesn't play church. Doesn't just come in order to get the good things and leave without the presence of God. A true heart comes to God because of who he is, not just because of what he gives. And number two, true heart is sincere is number one. Number two, a true heart stands ready to obey him completely. A true heart stands ready to obey him completely. First John 2 says this, by this we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. By this we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. You see, a heart without obedience is not a true heart. We're to be doers of the word, not hearers only, because just a hearer of the word is like a man who looks at a mirror and when he turns away, he doesn't remember what he looked like. God calls us to full surrender as believers, not as special Christians, as believers. He calls us to full surrender. So I challenge you and I challenge me today, make the choice to seek him, to obey him above all else, and it'll transform your life. We're going to move into a time of invitation. And as, as we do, I want you guys to know 
the opportunity has been given for us to draw near to God by the blood of Jesus. The opportunity has been given because of the blood of Jesus. So where's your heart? Where's your heart? We have a few short years on this earth. My little sister lived 33 years. The, the Bible tells us that our lives are like a mist. It's here in the morning and it's gone in the afternoon. We have a few short years here on this earth. The question is, what are we going to do with it? We've got a choice to make. Are we going to choose to pursue God and his righteousness and holiness? Or are we going to choose to pursue the world? There's a big difference. Let's not play church. Let's not be fake. Let's be real. Let's come to him with a real heart. Jesus Christ came down to die for us. Hands and feet still scarred. He's looking at us today. Draw near to me. Draw near to me. He wants your heart. Give him your heart today. As the, as the, the prayer partners come forward, we're going to pray. And we're going to have a time of invitation.